Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to another Monday edition of Corner Kick. I am Nathan Strauss, joined by Caleb Rhodes. I'm, I'm not a man who's something, 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 something. There's too much going on right now for you to be just, <laughs> quote unquote, a man. Okay. Uh, hello. And Nick Vinden. What's going on, Corner Kick fam? We are recording this in the midst of Liverpool playing at Wolverhampton Wanderers. So if you hear any strange sounds in the background that is probably me and also barcelona against huesca easily the bigger game right. of the two well, barcelona right now are 3-1 up so i think there's less of a chance that yeah but we're actually fighting up. for a league title right now so <laughs> wow <laughs> okay i can leave <laughs> well Wait, can i just say can i just say least, you know at least i wanted to say this for a few weeks now i just wanted to say this for a few weeks now at the beginning of the year Arsenal looked like they were going to be relegated. And it was pretty clear that it was Liverpool, Barcelona, and Arsenal, at least amongst our three teams. But now, I think the order has pretty much flipped, and Barcelona are now having by far the best season, followed by Arsenal, followed by Liverpool. I know, but Barcelona also play in a league that is the weakest it's ever been in years. And anyone who wins La Liga this season shouldn't really, you know deserve to be like coronated with wreaths and flowers because that league is just an absolute disaster well at least we're going to be in the champions league next year you might be in that new like third tier european europa conference the the europa conference also arsenal Arsenal are still what are they in ninth we're tied for 10th okay so sorry tied for nine tied for nine liverpool are at least if they win this game they're going to go up to sixth and be five points off the top four so that's a big if I mean, yeah, Nick, you'd be five points off the top four, but also five points off of 10th, where Arsenal are. So it's kind know, of a... Nathan, 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 we weren't in 16th at one point this season. Very Okay, anyways, let's just get on and talk about soccer. <laughs> um, I really and... don't want to, to be honest. You powered me to recording. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick does his best to recover from illness just to be able to record with us, only to immediately come out and get shot on by Caleb like 30 seconds off the drop. But we should talk about first, I guess, the, the marquee fixture in the Premier League this weekend, and really the only marquee fixture in the Premier League. For the first time in a while, it seemed like uh, there was really only one true focal point for um nbc sports and for the fixtures around the league yeah not and that a, was not an exciting weekend of soccer normally we come <laughs> on here and we say oh we got a jam-packed weekend of things to talk about i think we all got up on saturday and we're like uh, this is not the greatest i was <laughs> actually i was, yeah i was actually a little annoyed um because i had saturday free for the first time in a long time i normally have work then only for the games to be palace west brom everton burnley and fulham city um mm-hmm. so Less than ideal, I would say. But so it wasn't even just the Premier League. It was like every league. And it was so funny because one of my friends who doesn't watch soccer that often was like, oh, Caleb, I watched like the Bundesliga for the first time in forever. And I was like, I'm so sorry that this is the weekend that you chose to to start watching soccer again. Sorry, yeah. Nathan. Continue. No. Anyways, I think the fixtures got a little bit better on Sunday at the very least. Um, and the main fixture that I suspect most people tuned into this weekend was Arsenal 2, 
Spurs won. All in all, I was obviously very pleased with how the match turned out. But really, Arsenal could have won this game like 4 or 5 nil, but also lost it 3-2. It was one of those very entertaining derbies, which is how how this derby has been um, in the last couple of years. So, Caleb, why don't we start with... Actually, Nick, why don't we start with you? What did you think of this game? Well, we'll get to the meat of this game and, you know, what it means for the the seasons of both Arsenal and Spurs, respectively. But I think we just, let's just get our uh, reactions to the Eric Lamella Rabona out of the way first before we go into the meat, the meat and bones of this game. Oh, my goodness. I think when Hunmin San went down injured and Eric Lamella was tapped up as the man to come in to replace him, I don't think any of us expected that we would see a goal that beautiful, except for Lamella, who it seems, <laughs> who it seems like this is like every every three or four years will come up with this piece of exquisite skill. It was a perfect touch. First time Rabona goes past three Arsenal players, nutmegs Thomas Partey into the back of the net. Really their only piece of, of incisive attacking play in the entire game. But boy, is it worth it. And I think it will live long in the annals of North London Derby highlights. Anytime any television network needs to promote this game, it was just that good. The rest of the performance, though, was a bit of a disaster for Tottenham. However, a very encouraging performance for Arsenal, especially considering the big call that Mikel Arteta made to drop Mikel Obam- or Pierre-Emerick <laughs> Mikel Obama. <laughs> Someone needs to Photoshop that. Someone needs to Photoshop Mikel Obamiang fusion. Uh, but yeah, the, the big call that he made, obviously, to drop Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang for being late. You know, we've talked a lot this season about every time we watch a game together or any time that there's a big game in the Premier League, it's always seemed to be a, like, nil-nil draw. This was actually a, just an incredibly entertaining game. You had Emil Smith-Rowe smashing one off the crossbar. Um, you had the crazy, crazy, crazy Rabona goal from Lamella. Do we think it's the best of his two Rabona goals for Spurs now? I actually prefer, this is going to sound so elitist, I actually <laughs> prefer the other Rabona from the Europa League a while ago just because that was outside of the box. And it was like a curler. But I think what we, uh, there's a this few things to recognize. Time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy just now that we can compare two Rabona goals. And the man doesn't score that often. Like he hadn't scored in over a year in the Premier League. He's only scored, this is only his 17th Premier League goal for Spurs since being signed in what, 2013? 2013. So the, the man's not super prolific or hasn't been. His first Premier League goal in two years. Yeah, like it's 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 utterly insane, but I think it's really impressive to see that first off, this man has such a bad right foot that he would rather rabona it than just shoot. And two, the amount of control he has with a rabona. I don't know if you've ever tried to do it. It's really hard. It's really 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 hard. So, I, I, I don't know. Every this is just a great game to watch and but Spurs were were a bit of a mess. Um I think Nick has some more thoughts on that. But Nathan, as as the resident Arsenal fan here, what what did this result symbolize mean to you? Well, first of all, Caleb, you were talking about how how much Lamella hates his right foot. It's so bad that he hasn't completed a pass with his right foot this season. 
How is that possible? It's just insane. Like, that's just that's just actually insane. And the fact is, he's a 29-year-old professional soccer player who has about as good of a right foot as I do. Um, so that's just kind of nuts to think that you can be like a professional player for one of the bigger clubs in the world um, and not use your foot to that extent. Um, but anyways, that goal was just absurd. I was um, sitting on a bed and I, my job just sort of dropped and I was like in a state of shock. Like I kind of was broken by that goal um, because it was so unexpected. And I was sort of just sitting there um, agape for uh, a solid like two and a half minutes. But other than that, I was pretty pleased with how Arsenal played in general. I was a little nervous when I saw the starting lineups and I saw that there was no Aubameyang because he's been in really good form lately. Um, and we can talk about the decision to drop him, but I don't necessarily disagree with it at all. I think if you're a manager and you have certain non-negotiables like be on time for team meetings and then your player and your captain isn't on time for a team meeting, you kind of have to enforce that standard. But I thought Lacazette played pretty well. He ended up winning a penalty that was pretty clear cut. I think Um, Arsenal really should have scored in that first half. They hit the woodwork twice and Cedric hit the post and uh, Smith Rowe almost scored what would have been another really, really good derby goal. Um, and Arsenal, despite making things as difficult as possible in the last 10 minutes, when they were up a man, uh, managed to hold on, which is very important. And now our next two games are against West Ham and Liverpool, um, which is a really important uh, run of play. So all in all, a good performance for Arsenal. Spurs really lost this game just as much as Arsenal won this game. Yeah, we can get on to Tottenham. I, I thought Arsenal played really, really well. And I think this was... If you wanted to to take a look at what the future project will look like under Mikel Arteta, the direction of in the style that they want to play going forward, I think look no further than this game, even though Aubameyang wasn't playing. And I think honestly, that was an even more even more pivotal point is that they played this well without their talisman and they, they kept true to the style that Mikel wants to employ, you know, that interchanging of of positions, that quick break play. Um, I think Smith Rowe is going to be a really key piece for this team going forward. Let's move on to Spurs because this is a really disastrous performance from Jose Mourinho's men who had been on, you know, an uptick in form since their collapse towards the beginning of this, this calendar year. However, I'm reminded of like a story that I read from a Spanish journalist a long time ago that when Jose was beginning to fall out at Real Madrid with his players and with the upper tier management at Madrid. They joked about this folder or this book that Mourinho had in his office. And I forget what it was called, but it was essentially this, like it, it was this fake book that they had invented because of like attacking tactics that Mourinho employed purely because Mourinho doesn't really focus much on training, attacking movement and patterns of attack. Rather, he focuses on what to do off the ball and in defensive scenarios. And Mourinho came out in the press and said that, like, yeah, like, we're scoring so many goals because of the work that me and my staff are doing on the training pitch to, like, get the best out of our attackers. And then behind closed doors, Benzema, Di Maria, Ozil were all, like, laughing because they're like, what? Like, this guy hasn't, like, trade doesn't attacking movement at all. Like, what is he talking about? Blah, blah, blah. So I think this game was very reminiscent of that and that, you know, on the sidelines, you could hear Jao Sacramento, Mourinho's uh, assistant coach, just shouting press 
press, press constantly with no real game plan of how to press. He was just shouting to press. And then I think you saw, you know, Gareth Bale and Mura would interchange positions without any real direction. Harry Kane barely had any touches of the ball uh, in the opening 70 minutes of this game. There is really no structure going forward for Spurs. And I think when you have the wealth of talent that Mourinho has on display, you need to implement a bit more of an offensive game plan to get the best out of them, especially considering, you know, Bale, Kane, Lamella, when he was introduced, aren't the most mobile of players. Yeah, and it's it's important to note, too, it's not like, you know, the Spurs offense was humming and then Hoonman San got injured and everything changed when Lamella came on. Arguably, I would say their attacking prowess stayed about the same, and it was really only these few kind of one-off moments of individual quality that gave Spurs, you know, any chance on goal. I mean, the game very well could have ended 2-2 if Harry Kane hadn't just not gotten enough curl on that low free kick towards the end of the game. But I think that is the problem, is that it seems like Spurs right now are relying on individual moments of brilliance rather than, you know, working together to actually play with an attack. And as good as some of these players are, like Gareth Bale has been good in, been in good form, like Harry Kane, who's obviously, you know, a world-class striker, that can't be your ultimate strategy, especially against, you know, you know, your main rivals who are lower than you in the table. I think we're starting to see Mourinho get a little unsettled again. I mean, before the game, they asked him, you know, what he thought about Arsenal, and he had this whole thing like, oh, I don't look down the table. But I mean, the way things are going... You know, Arsenal and Spurs are, are creeping together. And so he might have to, you know, start treating teams with a little more respect. And maybe that starts with, you know, actually figuring out how to break down your opponents. And then I think the other important thing is that Mourinho had sort of a, what we'll dub on this podcast, a third season Mourinho post-match press interview where he called out, you know, important players for hiding. That was his quote. I don't think he can shirk you know, individual responsibility on himself for the way that they they come into these games and they don't begin by playing well because that's that just screams that they don't really have you know, maybe they were anticipating Obamayang playing on the left and that's why they were having a really hard time with Tierney and Smith Rowe. But I also feel like even if Obamayang were were playing, it wouldn't have been much different because I couldn't tell you what the game plan was for Tottenham in the opening thirty minutes of this game other than to try and like work it directly up the field into the feet of Gareth Bale and Harry Kane. Not to mention the fact that when you're a defensive-oriented team, which Spurs are and most Mourinho teams are, you actually have to defend well. And I didn't think any of Spurs' back four had a good day. I thought Reggion was fine, but Matt Doherty got repeatedly just destroyed by Smith Rowe and Kieran Tierney for the opening Arsenal goal. Um, which was particularly nice. Dobbins and Sanchez got booked and probably could have been sent off. And Toby Alderweireld was fine, but not good enough. And so if you're relying on, you know, making the most of your 45% possession, which is what Spurs did, and that number increased a little bit towards the end, um, you have to actually be able to defend. And they did not do that effectively at all, which partly, um, I think, unsettles Mourinho, who's such a big defensive strategist. Well, I think that that underlines another question, Nathan, that I find quite interesting is that how much of this is Jose, you know, not being coming into these games, being the most prepared or and how much of it is like 
the quality of the Spurs squad that I think got really exposed towards the end of Pochettino's time at the club. Jose still has a lot of those players in and around the team, especially in defense. He hasn't really had like much time to bring in many defenders other than Doherty. And like, I guess if you want to count Hoiberg in that as a defensive midfielder, you can. But it's just interesting because I think there is a mixture of, you know, Jose, maybe I don't want to say like relenting, but there is a case of like, I think he just knows that he doesn't have the defensive quality in this team that like can live up to those standards. However, if that's the case, you need to find an alternative way of trying to win these games. Yeah, I mean, you know, just before we move on from this game, I think Spurs defense was quite poor, but they were especially poor, I thought, just trying to pass out of the back and in possession at all. Reguillon, Alderweireld, Sanchez, and Darty all had a series of heavy touches at the back, which, you know, when you're sitting so deep is really dangerous and set up a bunch of uh, arsenal opportunities. I think Sanchez in particular looked incredibly off the pace. And I think, you know, he has to bring Dyer back into the fold a little bit as someone who, you know, actually can play with the ball a little bit better. But yeah, a very bad display in pretty much all directions. Yeah, well, one last thing before we move on is Lamella got sent off for elbowing Kieran Tierney in the face, but that came just a little bit before Harry Kane rugby tackled Gabriel Magalhaes and could have really, you know, concussed him. Harry Kane is someone who we've talked about on the show as having a much cleaner record than his play would actually indicate. And right in front of the linesman, he shoulder barges into Magalaj's head um, and chest while the ball is clearly gone. And it was an instance where I would have been furious if, uh, I mean, I was pretty mad that he didn't get booked or at least cautioned to. Um, And it seems like another example of how the England captain can get away with all kinds of truancy and breaking of the laws. But we don't have to discuss it in too much depth if you guys want to just move on. I don't know. I didn't think this is as egregious as, you know, that, wwe style like blockbuster move that he does on people occasionally um (laughs) i did think that it was a bit of a rough challenge from kane but i also think kane like he's a big guy i think if we were to stand next to harry kane it's tough because like we're not really able to see how big some of these players are and i think if we were to stand next to harry kane we would be like oh wow this guy is is a big, big dude. He just plays in a sport where he's surrounded like by lots of smaller guys. And stuff like this can tend to happen. I don't think he's as uh, aware of that as maybe he should be, especially when it comes to, you know, protecting his fellow professionals. Maybe he is. I don't know. But I, I just think that, you know, these things do tend to happen sometimes. Maybe he should be disciplined a little bit more. But I think this also just leads back into the conversation we had a few weeks about a, a few weeks ago about the about the consistency of refereeing in the Premier League right now. Yeah, I mean, I think this was a pretty heavy shove, push off the ball situation. Late in the game, it was definitely a bit of frustration. And I think Harry Kane does have this streak of sort of dirty play. I think there is a day soon where if Spurs, you know, continue to struggle and he continues to not see the ball where you know, he might do something a, a little more rash um, and perhaps, you know, see see a yellow or, or even a red. But I don't think it was a great challenge. But, 
we'll move on and you know see what happens next. I have another Kane question actually before we move on. Especially okay. We're kind yes. of late on on scheduling today. Yeah. Um, how long, especially if things continue to go south under Mourinho, and and they don't make appropriate signings in the transfer market to correct some of their defensive issues, their structural their structural issues. How long do you think Harry Kane has left at Tottenham? Because he's he's breaking all of these individual scoring records. He is, you know, maybe close to a century of goals away from Alan Shearer's record. How long do you think he goes without thinking that he deserves a trophy of some kind? I think the problem is that there's really just two or three clubs in the world that I could see as both wanting him and being able to afford him. And those three are PSG, Real Madrid, and Manchester United. And while I think United would probably be the most likely of those three to happen, just given Real Madrid's other pursuits um, as of late, I just don't know how feasible it is for any team to necessarily match the valuation that Spurs would want for him. Like I would say he probably would cost around 180 million. And if you're paying 180 million for a guy who's already in his prime, I think a lot of the time execs might want that money to go to somewhere, someone younger or towards someone younger. But it's a good, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting question because Spurs are not winning anything anytime soon. Wait, the league cup, the league cup. In which they will they will definitely lose to or City. The Europa League, I could see them winning that. I I do think I I actually think the League Cup is is quite important in this story because a Mourinho really needs to win something, especially because the team is struggling in the Premier League, and b if as I think we all expect Manchester City just kind of roll over Tottenham like three nil in that game. It will be the moment where Harry Kane's now lost a Champions League final, which you know they probably didn't deserve to be in to begin with. They've lost now this League Cup against a significantly better team, and he's like, "Okay, I really need to leave." Like, there's there's no more chances here. But I think Nathan, you're right in that he's at both at a weird age and at such a high value that there's a vanishingly small set of teams that could buy him and he doesn't necessarily fit into their plans. So weirdly enough, he could kind of be like stuck at Spurs, um, whether he, he likes it or not. But anyways, one team that he definitely will not be moving to is Atletico Madrid. And we should talk about Atleti because we talked about them a bit last week when we discussed the developing La Liga title race. Well, it happened again this weekend. Atleti were unable to score against Hetafe. They drew nil-nil. They further dropped points while both Real Madrid and Barcelona, um, who are 10 minutes away from securing the three points, um, picked up points to move them ever closer, meaning that the current table has Barcelona and Real Madrid four and six points behind Atleti, uh, respectively. And all of a sudden, given this drastic dip in form, it really seems like Atleti are doing their best to avoid securing this La Liga title. I think, honestly, Harry Kane would be a perfect fit for I was about to say. <laughs> that, is, that is a discussion for another time. I do agree, though, that as of right now, I don't know if I'm confident in saying it, Letty are going to see out this title chase. I think, especially considering the form that Messi has been in in the past month, I would consider Barcelona to be not favorites, but certainly pressing for that title. I think every team in La Liga, every top team in La Liga can be beaten and can beat anyone. 
and that makes for a very interesting title race. However, I think Atleti need to find a way, like we said on the last podcast, to put these games away. Against Hatafe, they have not conceded a goal against this club in their previous 19 encounters. So they have a psych they have what I would say to be a massive psychological edge on this club and they needed to get a win in this game and they didn't. And especially since Barcelona have switched to a far more suitable 3-5-2 formation for whatever personnel that Komen wants to put out on the day. I think that Atleti are in trouble of being caught in this title race. It just seems like Simeone is is kind of spinning the wheels over there and and the wheels look to be falling off as their personnel don't seem to be showing up for this title race. Yeah, so a little over a month ago on February 1st, Atleti were first on 50 points and Barcelona Madrid were 10 points back at 40 points and 538 gave them a 60% chance of winning the league. Fast forward to today and suddenly, at least according to 538, Barcelona are favorites for La Liga with a 49% chance of winning and Atleti are down to 38%. So that's like a 20% probability swing in just over a month. This title race rests on the form of one man. And his name is Jao Felix, who has very strangely found himself benched in recent weeks. He had a brief injury problem, but also Atleti switched their formation to this very strange like 3-5-2 that had Thomas Lamar kind of playing as a bit of a center midfielder. And as part of that, um, Simeone preferred Correa um, as the kind of second striker. But the thing is, Correa has never been a good goal scorer, and Correa has also topped out. Jao Felix has definitely not quite lived up to the billing, but he is the player in their squad who's youthful, unlike Luis Suarez, and who can just change a game. Simeone needs to rework this entire team around getting the best around Jao Felix because pretty cl- it's pretty clear that they need to shake something up because if they don't win La Liga at this point, honestly, it'd be a little bit embarrassing considering how far in front they were for how long and considering this is probably their best chance in a while because it's a relatively down year for Barcelona. And once again, Madrid just don't score goals. I think, Caleb, I think the worrying thing about Felix is that he seems to be a little bit at odds with Simeone right now. I think we saw in that game where he did come on and he did score. He shushed at the bench. He put up his, put his finger to his mouth and he shushed Simeone. And I don't think Simeone took that well, considering we know him to be uh, pretty tyrannical when it comes to the way that he, he controls his Atleti squad. He has them under his thumb. They fight for him and no one else. And if you don't get on board with that train, you get shipped out of town. I think that's a really concerning thing for Felix. But if you're Simeone, you have to find a way to put water under the bridge somewhat and reintegrate Felix into this team. Because I think, you know, in NBA terms, he's someone who can create his own shot and can really influence a game on his pure individual talent. And he's an X factor that not many other clubs in La Liga have. Perhaps another player who might determine the fate of this title race is Kareem Benzema, who scored a 20-minute brace um, after Madrid were down 1-0. And he's up to 15 goals and five assists on the year, which is pretty wild as well. Um, the top three scorers in order are Messi, Suarez, and Benzema. So just like old times right now um, in La Liga, despite each of those players being significantly more aged than I think 
I would like to remember them as. Shall we move on to Italy, where things will take a drastic turn for the worse? So it all starts with, maybe it's for the worse, maybe it's for the better, but for the third consecutive year, Juventus get knocked out of the Champions League by a club that their president has um, deemed as being lesser than them. Um, Juve fall to Porto uh, in the second leg of the Champions League on away goals. So um, despite the fact that they did make a bit of a comeback, they scored uh, three times in that game. Uh, They did allow four goals to Porto over two legs. And if you're an elite club in Europe, you just can't be doing that. And then as Caleb noted in the chat, they came back this weekend and Ronaldo scored a hat trick and no one cared because without Europe um, and clearly without a real chance to win the Scudetto this year, Juve are kind of fading in a big way right now. I think it is not unfair to say that the transfer of Cristiano Ronaldo to Juventus has completely upended any upward momentum Juventus thought they were going to have as a club when they brought him in. Ronaldo was brought in to win the Champions League. Obviously, they had gotten to the finals twice and were beaten by both Barcelona and Real Madrid. Judging on you know their finances, where they are as a club, the moves that they're making, player swaps, debt, the impacts of COVID, I think you have to say that you know the money that they shilled out for Ronaldo and just look at the players who are turning up for them against Porto and at the weekend, I think you just have to say that this transfer has been, been a, a bit of a disaster for them. So first off, it, it's, a, it's a bit of an over-exaggeration to say that uh, no one cared. I mean, Ronaldo's hat trick this weekend did put him beyond one of Pele's various contested scoring records. So he I has a goal a game in Serie A this season. But I agree, Nick. I think his presence has completely upended their development in attack, right? I think it's really set back Dibola coming into his own. I think they still haven't really found another top striker to pair with him. Marata has had a very up and down career. I think it paired well, perhaps, with some of Juventus's aging defensive players. But even now, you look at their the defense they put out, and you have like Demerol at the back against Porto. And honestly, you know we can talk about this too if we really want to. But part of the reason they lost against Porto is because they were so bad defensively and put together one of the worst walls in soccer history at any level from like kindergarten up, even like schoolyard. Ronaldo especially was way at fault for this free kick from like 45 meters out, turning his back before the ball was even shot. So this team is definitely a mess and trending down. I agree. I think they should get rid of him this summer. I think it's an interesting question for Ronaldo about how he wants to end his career. Um, and, and where he goes. But certainly Juventus are no longer a top 10 team in Europe, I would say. Although I think their chief executive, Andrea Agnelli, <laughs> would have some words with you about their status as a top club in Europe because I think he was subjected to the ire of many European football fans. And I think there was a lot of schadenfreude taken when Juventus were knocked out of the Champions League by a club that I probably Agnelli thinks should not be in his new incarnation of the Champions League or European Super League. So Andrea Agnelli is part of the Agnelli family who own Fiat. Um, They're a very powerful sort of industrial family from northern Italy. 
Um, and he is one of the younger members of that family. I think he's in his mid forties at this point. Um, but he took over Juve in 2010 has done an interesting job with the club, I would say. Um, and now he is on the, uh, UEFA. What's the name of their, what's the name of the actual commission? Like the new UEFA clubs committee or European club association. Yes. Uh, rather as part of the UEFA executive committee. Um, and he's also one of the people who gets to propose changes and um, sort of format changes to the Champions League by virtue of that position. But he gives off kind of Elon Musk vibes, as in like kind of a, a scary rich guy with different ideas that very well might fail, all the while being vastly disruptive to um, smaller elements of their respective fields. So um, one of these proposals involves uh, banning transfers from champ- one Champions League club to another, um, meaning that smaller clubs that aren't in Europe would basically be your teams. Anyways, well, this man, Agnelli, has a number of dangerous ideas, I think, for soccer. Um, and the problem is he's in the position where he can actually enact these dangerous ideas that include banning the transfers, the transfer of players from one Champions League club to another, which would basically make clubs that aren't in Europe feeder clubs for the bigger teams, um, as well as changing the format of the Champions League to make it a 36-team competition with eight games in the group stage, or 10 games, pardon me, in the group stage. And all in all, it just seems like this is just um, a bad way for UEFA to go about things. But Nick, I know you have your opinions on on him, so why don't you take it away? Yeah, this dude sucks. Uh, that's my opinion on him. I, think I love nuance. When you... <laughs> When you think about, you know, we've had these discussions a lot. We had this discussion uh, a few months back when it came to Project Restart. I think when the murmurings of the European Super League and Bartomeu uh, around the time of him getting removed from office at Barcelona. Like there are people in this game, I think more executives than not of these bigger clubs, who I think it is actually quite ironic that we open this podcast discussing uh, the lack of distinct fixtures this weekend, the lack of exciting fixtures. And I think if you're Andrea Agnelli, you never want to play Cagliari on a random Sunday ever again. What you want to do is be in a European Super League and play Bayern Munich in Dubai on a Saturday. And then (laughs) the following Saturday, you'd want to play Manchester United in Monaco. There are these people for whom, you know, the romanticism of the game doesn't exist. It's purely a business venture. And for them, that means, you know, the creation of a European Super League is something which, you know, will will kill, like Nathan was saying, you know, the mid-table clubs, the lower league clubs. They'll essentially become, you know, feeders for these bigger teams. And the sporting structure, I think, that we enjoy about soccer, the fact that it is at the beginning of the season, everyone starts with zero points, and it is what you make of it towards the end of the season. Like, any club has the chance. Look at the, look at the Premier League at the beginning of the season. And, and Aston Villa were in the top four, Everton are chasing top four, that would completely be gone under these rules that Agnelli is implementing. It would completely upend the sport as we know it. And I was certainly glad to see Juventus go out to Porto last week, purely because I know for a fact FC Porto is one of those clubs that Agnelli wouldn't want to permit in his, you know, idyllic version of whatever form the Champions League would take in his mind. So would Leon, and so would Ajax, the two 
other teams that have knocked Juventus out of the Champions League since they brought in Ronaldo. You know, as football trends towards this, you know, uber capitalistic vision of these guys like Avram Glazer, Andrea Agnelli, and even my own club, uh, John Henry and FSG, there will always be, you know, positive moments like this where David does beat Goliath and we can see why these changes that these guys like Agnelli want to make would really be a detriment to the game that we love. Snaps, snaps. On the Elon Musk comparison, <laughs> did you guys see that Musk declared himself the techno king of Tesla? Yeah. Dude, we live in a we live in a strange world. We do live in a strange world. I actually, I think the comparison is 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 it's not it's not as far off base as you might think, but uh, obviously with different stakes and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is just a bad proposal. Um, and the idea of a European Super League is almost brought up as like a way of punishing whenever we see instances of parity across these leagues. Um, and it's something that I really hope does not get implemented at any time soon because it just is so disruptive to the organic spirit of soccer. And I think it was Grant Wall or maybe Jonathan Wilson who said it in his article, but these rules are just being made by people who have no idea um, what the true meaning of soccer uh, is. So I certainly hope that these reforms don't come to pass or that if they do, they're heavily modified to not disrupt the status quo as it is right now, which I actually quite like. So we're going to conclude this podcast today uh, with an excellent story, uh, which Nick brought to our attentions. But don't you just hate it when this happens, when your club president goes to jail for four years and eight months? Uh, the Dynamo Zagreb... Uh, Boss Zoran Mamic was sentenced to almost five years in prison um, for tax fraud, uh, making personal profits from Dynamo Zagreb's transfer sales, including the Luka Modric deal. Um, and this includes the person who's actually, he actually manages their team, which of course has the most successful academy um, in all of Europe uh, that generates a ton of revenue. He has since resigned and his brother, who's also been indicted, um, is at large in Bosnia and Herzegovina right now. So very interesting stuff from Croatia. And you get the sense that this is the kind of thing that probably happens more often than you'd expect. But it's very rare for a country to actually take these kind of steps to imprison someone like this. Yeah, I don't mean to, to paint every, every person in this group with the same brush. But this is like the most Eastern European shit. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps ever seen in my life and yeah to go into further detail on the charges uh this guy was found guilty of avoiding taxes and profiting personally off of dinamo zagreb transfers uh the featured one being when luka Modric was transferred to tottenham hotspur way back when i mean this is just an outrageous story i couldn't imagine being a, a player for Dinamo Zagreb right now. You're going into a second-legged tie uh, in the Europa League against Tottenham, and your manager is, is being is going is going to have to go to court for potentially profiting off of uh, bringing you into the club, which I think would be I don't know these bonkers bonkers stuff. I think when we talk about people who don't deserve to have a place in soccer because of you know personal profiting and and than the like. I think this guy definitely needs to be added to the list. 
Caleb, this is an outrageous story. I think this is truly one of those stories that can only happen in soccer. I think we see this more in, in our sport than any other sport in the world. But uh, what is your take on this? Oh, yeah. No, this is this is something that only could happen in soccer, which is compared to, you know, sports in the U.S. so utterly decentralized. Um, I, I think it adds a little, like, flavor and spice to the game. Like, I'm not saying, like, I want stories like this to happen, but when they come up, I don't know, it, it's just kind of amusing, vaguely similar to our story over the summer or in a different way about the whole Russian League debacle. But I don't know. I, I'm just amused by this. It's a little sad. I also just don't understand how these crimes happen. Like, you're doing fine. You're like the head of Dynamo Zagreb. Do you really need to be committing tax fraud and other kind of financial crimes? But this is amusing. I'm sorry for any of the players that have been caught up in it, but I hope they find this man's brother in, in Bosnia. Godspeed to the to the the authorities there hunting this man down. Yeah, but it, but it is actually kind of wild that it happened at a place like Dynamo, just because compared to sort of other smaller Croatian or Balkan or Eastern European clubs, their academy is just so prolific. Like they mm-hmm. they produce basically every global superstar um, that comes from Croatia, and it's no surprise that in an era where Croatia has. I would say dramatically overachieved on the international stage, most notably in the last World Cup. Um, so Dynamo is responsible for a lot of that. So guys like Mateo Kovacic or Andre Kramaric or Luka Modric, um, basically all of the pro, the prominent um, Croatians who are in major leagues um, have come through the Dynamo Zagreb Academy. It's just very weird to see this happen at a club that, despite being in Eastern Europe, is more reputable. I would say than a lot of the smaller teams. Um, in in Croatia, yeah, that's the thing, Nathan. Is that Dinamo Zagreb on the globals, like or on the European stage, are not like a anonymous club. In fact, I think they're a pretty sizable club for their operation and their academy. And I think to see this happening, you never want to see someone, you know, profiting off of someone else's well being like this. And just to know that it's been happening for so long, like Luka Modric, that Luka Modric transfer happened over a decade ago. You know, it is. It's sad. It's sad. But, you know, it is one of those stories that I think look no further than soccer to find like the most hum- like the most bizarre human interest in most bizarre financial stories. Yeah, definitely, definitely a weird one. Why don't we wrap things up here? We've got a much better week of soccer coming up for us today or this week, rather, before um, the international break is surprisingly upon us um, starting next Monday. But we will know the quarterfinals for the Champions League and Europa League uh, by the end of the week. And I believe the draw is on Friday. So there'll be plenty to discuss when we meet a week from now. But until then, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been to give a shout out to Rui Patricio, who after what's like 12 minutes has just been taken off and the game is now resuming. So keep keep Rui Patricio in your thoughts. And we will see you all next time.